uh, Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, I'll be starting with the first verse, going through the 18th. But I want to begin by talking about last Sunday. Last Sunday, Corey brought us a great message on the entirety of Acts chapter 10, which is very impressive. And um, he opened up with a reference to a song written by Bob Dylan in 1964. That was when I was nine and Corey existed only in the mind of God. <laughs> Do y'all remember the name and the line from that song that he quoted? The times they are a-changing. Well, I got to give credit to Dylan. I didn't realize this, but I looked him up and he's acknowledged as the Shakespeare of his generation. Having, having written more than 500 songs. Since Corey reminded us of one last week, I now remember one. So, um, during my teens, I was more into Motown than Shakespeare. But uh, this morning, as a rebuke to that young radical, <laughs> and just to be an old contrarian, I'm here to tell you about another song, another songwriter. And this is one of my favorite songwriters, and he's written more than 750 songs. Take that, Corey. <laughs> and I guarantee you everybody in here knows words from his, some of his songs. I'll bet everybody in here knows words from many of his songs because his name was Isaac Watts. And he wrote, Joy to the World, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, and many other great immortal hymns. Listen to these words from another one that he wrote. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away, they fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Now, obviously, Corey was right, and he had a great catchphrase for that change, that transition that shift in the expansion of God's New Testament church, both geographically and ethnically. The times, they are changing. But, and Corey mentioned this in his message, I'm here to tell you that God's plan of salvation, it ain't a changing. God's plan of salvation is the same as it has been since Adam. As Watts so beautifully stated, from everlasting, thou art God, to endless years the same. Our God, he ain't a-changing. Those of you who know how really weird I am and the rest of you are learning, um, I believe strongly that all the essential truths and doctrines in the Bible, all of them, are held in tension. That there's a truth 
intention in parallel to the one we're considering. God is three. God is one. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. It just seems that God always puts truths together in parallel and holds them in tension to prevent extremism. Because we're what? We're extremists. And we would tend to run this way or run this way. And so I love the fact that he does that to honor the mystery. And so that we would accept the fact that God's wisdom is above ours and simply believe the truth in faith. Here in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11, we have a vivid example of this. I could say the more that some things change, the more we see that other things remain the same. But I remind you, the book of Acts is summarized in the first chapter in verse 8. But I want you to notice as I read the verses that precede it, what was on the mind of the apostles. In verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So even there, we see the tension, right? God's chosen people, Israel, the rest of the world to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 10 and 11 are some of the most important texts in the Bible about the expansion and the ecclesiology of the church. There's a huge, monumental, foundational shift going on in the Lord's building of his church through the apostles as they turn from the Jews only to the Gentiles also. The book of Acts is a book of constant transition. But I submit to you, it is also a book of unchanging truth. And that has been constant since the book of Genesis. I loved how Corey pointed out that God's methodology shifted from come and see in the old covenant to go and tell in the new covenant. But God's plan didn't change. The method did. Again, this is an antinomy a dialectic, a truth intention. Look for it here in what I'm about to read from the very beginning in the book of Deuteronomy when he had just given Israel the Ten Commandments. Notice, notice the tension here. Verse 12, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet, your fathers did, yet, on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you. Above all peoples as it is this day. So, 
circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So, show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So see, even from the beginning, although God had selected Israel for his people, yet his purpose in that special election was not to show partiality, but what? To love the alien. God never excluded anyone based on any distinctions that we can see. And yet part of God's plan of redemption was to set his special love and election on Israel for his special purposes and glory alone. And I believe his word is clear that both statements were and still are true and held in tension with each other. God may change the methods, but the message remains the same. God may change the techniques or matters of taste, but the truth remains the same. Therefore, the summary of my introduction is this. Times change, people change, but God and his plan never change. Or, to make it part two of Corey's message, our God and his plan, they ain't a-changing. Now, as I read the text, Acts chapter 11, verse 1, I want you to notice it's simple organization uh, grammatically. In the first three verses, there's the rebuke of Peter by the circumcision party. In the next verses 4 to 15, there's the report of Peter to the first church of Jerusalem. And then in verses 16 to 18, there's the results of that report. But as I read it, too, I want you to think about and notice the overarching view of God here. His divine providence is at work in all the details, all the events, all the people, governing every minute detail. And God's plan of redemption, God's plan of salvation. So read with me. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed four-footed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, 
for nothing uncommon or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers, who were with Peter, also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he'd seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And he will declare to you words or message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So as I dive in now, I want you to notice these doctrines that we see rise out of the text. Corey's covered the sequence, the narrative. So I want to focus on the doctrines and the practical applications. If you're taking notes, I've got five points. And yes, they all start with the same letter. Um, they all start with a W. So point number one is the witness the witness of God in Peter. Now, evidently, the word of what have happened spread fast. You know, uh, dramatic or controversial news always spreads fast. Um, so Joppa was about north, was northwest of Jerusalem, about 40 miles on the coast of the Mediterranean. 30 miles north of that was um, Caesarea. And Somehow this word had spread all across Judea and gotten back to Jerusalem. So Peter went to Jerusalem to report what God had done and defend the truth. The circumcision party, as they're called, are literally they of the circumcision, which are basically the members of the first Jewish church of Jerusalem, had time, that's my name, not theirs, uh, had time to talk about the unheathen, unclean, uh, the heathen, unclean Gentiles and Peter before he got back. But I want you to think about it. They were waiting on him like a Southern Baptist deacon board waits for a pastor who they found out has been to New Orleans and hung out on Bourbon Street. They're ready for him. The problem was not only that Peter had defiled himself by entering the house of the Gentiles, He'd actually fellowshiped with them. He'd gone in and eaten non-kosher foods with them. But Peter understood how they felt, didn't he? Because he had felt the same way, exactly the same way. So Peter begins in verse 4 and explains it all in order, literally setting it in order. And now, isn't this a rare glimpse 
into the humility and the modesty of Peter, who's normally not that way. I mean, he didn't argue or get on defensive and say, do you know who I am? Don't you remember that Jesus gave me the kingdom's keys and you're going to rebuke me, Peter? He didn't do that. He simply reported the facts orderly and let them speak for themselves. Truth can defend itself, and we need not fear nor explain if we stand in the truth. Remember, this is another retelling of the same vision of Peter and the angelic encounter of Cornelius. Both were told in detail in chapter 10, and then some details were told again in chapter 10. Now think about this. How valuable is a papyrus scroll? Writing is very hard and laborious and valuable. Scrolls are very hard to come by. Yet Luke takes the time and space to write this down again. Evidently, this is something very important to be repeated even again. And notice that Cornelius sent two servants and a devoted soldier to Peter. And then Peter comes with six Jewish brethren. So there were three Gentile witnesses and seven Jewish witnesses. Now we know the Jews require everything to be verified by what? Two or three witnesses. Under Roman law, seven witnesses were required for a will, to testify to a will. And if you wanted to declare something to be absolutely sealed and final, you had to have seven witnesses under Roman law. By the way, in the book of Revelation, the scrolls are sealed with how many seals? Seven. God is doing all this. The three Gentile witnesses, the seven Jewish witnesses, the repetition of the accounts in the scriptures. He's making sure that all people, those then and us now, know what? This is very important. How many times do you see this in scripture where things are repeated so much? This is his gospel. This is his plan. This is his ultimate plan of redemption for all people. Since there is no partiality with God, there can be no partiality in his church. He's torn down the wall of separation and made us all one in him. In the vision, Peter objects to eating any of the food as being unclean or common. And the root word for common is the word we get koine from, the koine Greek, which is the common language of the people. God declares to him in verse 9 that what God has cleansed, no man can consider common. He didn't say unclean. He said no man can even consider it common anymore. Peter's vision has two points. First, that Jewish food laws are fulfilled and ended in Jesus. Now, as a side note, isn't that a wonderful thing? How many of y'all like bacon? I am so thankful that we have bacon. To quote Bruce Haynes, the philosopher of our church, Adam gave us salad. Noah gave us the steak, but Cornelius gave us the bacon. I'm wondering, why, why don't you go in a store and there's a Cornelius brand of bacon? But anyway, 
Um, Second, the vision means that the Gentiles are not to be considered unclean or uncommon. As Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, Peter was not sinless, was he? He had to grow in this matter. We all know about his repeat of falling into prejudice that happens about seven years later in the church in Antioch. And he ended up having to be rebuked by Paul about that in Galatians. So old habits and prejudices don't die easily. But decades later, shortly before Peter's death in about A.D. 68, I want you to notice how he begins both of his epistles, written shortly before his death. 1 Peter chapter 1 begins this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside, and by the way, let me preface it, he's above Rome, writing in the Roman provinces, to Gentiles, not Jews primarily, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. So these people he once considered unclean, common, were now extraordinarily uncommon because they were chosen by God. He begins Second Peter this way, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. This is a Jew writing this. By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter now sees the faith and standing of Gentile Christians equal to that of the Jews. Even more dramatic. Notice how Peter refers to these Gentile Christians in his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Wow. Peter sees these Gentiles as God's people. He's a Jew. He sees them as God's people. Praise God for making us one in Jesus Christ. I mean, that is a dramatic point to see Peter's growth from being so prejudiced that he falls back into that sin, and yet now he sees them as God's chosen people. God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ, brings reconciliation, not only with God, but between people. 
quote Daryl Bach in his commentary. He said, this reconciliation worked itself out with cultural sensitivity. Gentiles did not need to become Jews, nor Jews to become Gentiles. Paul's position was this. <clears throat> if the issue did not touch on the core of the gospel, then let each do what was appropriate for their own conscience. Some would eat certain foods. Others would eat anything. Some would set apart certain days. Others would treat all days the same. And he adds, care must be exercised not to invert the mistake of the first century by insisting that Jewish believers become like Gentiles. That last sentence, I want you to think about it. Can, can We all know we can impose our Western paradigms on all the peoples of the earth, and that's wrong. But can we also think about how the modern American church may be seeking to impose cultural paradigms on the traditional and biblical church? wanting us to be like the world. Everyone does not need to do the same thing in terms of cultural matters or taste. I think we as Grace Fellowship particularly, we know the application of this. God's gospel is for all people, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, everywhere. We know that. I think where the error might come in confessing personally is do you ever think some people groups are too lost to be saved I do I mean I confess that I know it's wrong but I know in my mind the way I look at some groups of people what I'm really doing is saying they're too far gone Lord, you can't save them. They're too far. I mean, radical Muslims, terrorists, anarchists, um, the most ungodly even in this country that rile and, you know, pitch fits against anything Christian or godly. I think they're hopeless. I mean, and I'm wrong, Right? I mean, that's wrong because if God has his chosen people, even among the terrorists of Islam, and if he is calling them and he has made them clean, uncommonly elect, then we must find a way to be a light unto even them. In word and deed. I need to see people as God sees them. As his sheep. Who either one day will hear his voice. Or hear his voice. And become sheep. Remember. I started off talking about how we can see God's providence. And his plan working itself out. In Acts 10 11. Well first. Point. Number one, God commands us to be his witnesses. Peter fulfilled God's call regarding Cornelius and his household. 
But second, providentially, notice how God had prepared the soil for these Gentiles. Cornelius is described in verse 2 of 10 as a devout man who feared God, giving many alms to help others and prayed continually. Verse 35, chapter 10, implies that God had placed in every nation those elect who fear him, who do what is right and are acceptable and welcome to him. So question, think about this. Could the angel sin of God have delivered the gospel to Cornelius? Yeah. Why couldn't he? I mean, he could have preached the gospel. God sent him to Cornelius. He could have preached the gospel. So why didn't God just eliminate the step of having Peter come bring the gospel and let the angel preach the gospel? Because I think it's obvious, right? God wants us to be the witness. God wants us to be his ministers of reconciliation. He wants us to obey his command. And that involves our entire lives in every regard. But it must include the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But think about this. God's election and calling among all those people groups guarantees our success. He declares he will build his church. So we simply need to obey. He's preparing the soil for his seed to be received in every people group. So therefore, we see God's first step and element of his redemption plan is a witness. Not a fancy, well-spoken, well-educated, perfect witness, right? But one like Peter, who's rough, who failed often, who was uneducated, a hard-working fisherman who simply trusted God's word and was willing to be used. Think about this. You think maybe God might have been preparing a people in Senegal, softening hearts, causing them to go positive toward him, to fear him, respect him, give alms, pray continually, and then what? David and Holly Porch get sent to Senegal. Like we know it was no coincidence that Peter was sent to Cornelius because God gives us the behind the scenes. What about Taylor and Anna? You know, like, is there somebody in Eastern Europe that's going positive toward the gospel? And so what's God doing? He's getting them the gospel. I mean, and the same thing could be happening with me and you, right? Let's don't just make this about the missionaries. Like, is there somebody we work with that's, his heart, the soil is being dug, softened, so the seed can plant. And is that a family member? Is that a coworker? Is that whomever in our life that God is preparing? And we don't have to do the work. We just have to be the witness. So point number one is the witness of God in Peter. The next to go faster. Point number two is the word of God in Christ. Skip down to verse 14. And notice in verse 14, the angel tells Cornelius that Peter will come and speak words to him by which he and his household will all be saved. 
I hate to point out the mistakes in the ESV, but it says, it says message. But the root word there is rhema. It's words. So then ASB has it right. It's words by which you would be saved. And besides, rhema doesn't start with a W. Um, neither does message. Ideals and principles must be communicated by words. The Word of God is the only source of authority and the only source of good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not use our words to win the elect, but we use His words of truth, His gospel. Now, we all get nervous thinking about this, don't we? Because we think, oh, I might mess the gospel up, or I might have to defend the gospel. But I, I love, and, and I'm with you, believe me, I'm with you on this. But I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's my favorite quote from him. The word of God is like a lion. You don't need to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. Right? Well spoken. God's revelation, God's redemption always comes through his word. We know in John chapter 1, Jesus is described as the Word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the ultimate revelation. And the Word behind all the words of the Holy Scriptures. Receiving Him as the absolute logos, or Word of God, is essential to being born again. As it says in verse 12 of that chapter, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So, repeating, the plan of God, the plan of redemption of God involves one, the witness in men, the witness of God in men. Number two, the word of God in Christ. And next point three, the work of God in the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 15. Peter reported that as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. That beginning refers back to Acts chapter 2 and the initial commissioning of the church. In that same manner and powerful demonstration, God was miraculously signifying his life-giving spirit, applying his word, and bringing the dead to life. The falling of the spirit on the Gentiles was a sign to these Jews that they had received the same baptism of the Spirit. As Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The Spirit's presence, power, and work is essential to salvation. No one is ever saved without the life-giving power of the Spirit regenerating their dead spirits under new life. And that includes in the Old Covenant. It's like this. Dead men don't need help. They need a resurrection. So we need the Holy Spirit to resurrect us. Jesus said, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, think about this. Wouldn't we expect the master plan of redemption of a triune God to be Trinitarian in nature. So God the Father loves a people and desires to redeem them. So 
you would think it would be executed by both God the Son and God the Spirit. Notice how this is obvious in these verses. Look at verses 14 to 16. In verse 14, we see the Word of God, and then we see the work of God in verse 15. Then again in verse 16, it says, And I remembered the Word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So here again, we see the Word of God, followed by the work of God, by the Spirit. So, it's back and forth. The Word, then the work. The Son, then the Spirit. And that should not be a surprise. That should be expected. So, again, the plan of God's redemption is the witness of God in men, the Word of God in Christ, the work of God in the Holy Spirit. Next point, number four, the way of God in God's plan. Look at verse 17. Peter recounts in verse 17 how he realized that if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So I ask you, what is God's way? In this text, there's not a root word for way. That's the way it's translated. Literally, the text says something like, who was I to be able to hinder God? Who was I to be able to hinder God? I think the obvious meaning, though, is that it refers to God's will, his plan, his purpose, his providence, his way. In other words, that which is his divine desire, prerogative, and decree. That's God's way. His providence and plan work together, preparing the soils and the seed, orchestrating every detail and event, accomplishing exactly what God decreed. And we know Jesus said he would build his church, and the gates of death and hell cannot prevail against it. Here it is, people. God has a plan that cannot be thwarted. God has a people that cannot be lost and will be saved. God has a church that cannot be stopped and will be glorified as his bride in heaven. And God has a way that we cannot hinder and we must be in it. Those things are absolute foundational, immovable, unchanging from eternity to eternity. We can't stop it. We can't hinder it. We can only hurt ourselves and lose reward. So let's get in it. Like a great tidal wave of providence, God moves across the world in every tribe and tongue and nation and people preparing the soil, sending the witnesses with the seed, revealing himself in his word, regenerating the dead unto life by his work of the Spirit. So how do we practically live in his way to have our sails catch his winds and be blown along in his purpose in our everyday lives? That should be our daily prayer. 
How do we do that? But to sum up, one more time, we have the witness of God in men, the word of God in Christ, the work of God in the Holy Spirit, the way of God in his plan, and that results in, fifthly, the worship of God. Look at verse 18. Now, like any good reform message, you know we had to end up where all things will end up, and that's with the worship of God. I mean, it's all about the glory of God, right? The glory of God is going to be worshiped. So notice in verse 18 that after these hard-shelled Judaizers of the first Jewish church in Jerusalem heard this report, they fell silent. Literally, they were silenced. That's what it says. They were silenced. What could they say? Any rebuttal would have been silly and couldn't stand anyway. But by the grace of God, they were filled and controlled by the same Spirit. So what did they do? They glorified God. Thankfully, these were not really Judaizers. I accused them falsely. These were Christians. They were Christians also. So God's plan always leads to his worship. In the little book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 14, one of the most beautiful verses in all the Old Testament to me, foretells of a day that is so wonderful to consider the consummation of all things. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How totally... Have you ever looked at the ocean? You ever been in the ocean where you can't see land? And now consider, how do the waters cover the sea? Like how complete, how total is that statement? So how complete and total will the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fill the earth? Pretty complete. As John Piper has beautifully explained, the difference between God's holiness and his glory is that his glory is revealed when his holiness goes public. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, when the seraphim are before the throne, they're saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his. You'd expect him to say what? Holiness. But what do they say? Glory. So, his holiness went public, and now it's glory. Same thing in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. You have the four living creatures around the throne, and what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The next verse says, whenever the living creatures gave glory. So we see his glory being worshipped when his holiness goes forth. In majesty. And people, there is no brighter glory of God than when he saves his people from among all the peoples on earth. So, I pray we take great comfort in this, that we find great confidence in this, and that we're greatly encouraged by seeing all these elements of God's plan for redemption for all time, for all people. In summary, 
It's the witness of God in men, the Word of God in Jesus Christ, God the Son, the work of God by God the Holy Spirit, the way of God and God's plan resulting in the worship of God. But before we close, I must mention the last phrase, verse 18. I thought about preaching the whole message on this, but I'll spare you from that. God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads unto life. What is the repentance that leads to life? We see, first of all, it's a gift, right? Because it's granted. It's given unto all who believe. That's another way of expressing the moment of salvation. A pastor, a former pastor of mine, told me this. Repentance is the other side of the coin from faith. They're the same. Faith and repentance. Both are a gift. You can't have one without the other. You can't believe in Jesus Christ as God the Son and not repent from yourself and your religion. You can't repent from your love of self, your flesh, your sin without turning in love and belief to God in Jesus Christ as your only hope and treasure. So I must ask are there those here today who have not received that gift that God alone can grant? And that's repentance that leads unto life. Real saving faith or repentance produces fruit. If there's not fruit of genuine repentance or genuine faith, then we must examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. If we don't really repent, we don't really believe, and vice versa. Charles Spurgeon said this about repentance and faith. Repentance grows as faith grows. Do not make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days and weeks, a temporary penance to be got over as fast as possible. No, it is the grace of a lifetime. Like faith itself, God's little children repent. And so do the young men and the fathers. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. They cannot be separated. I'm here to tell you, if you have any desire to repent, if you have any desire to believe, that's not of yourself. That is God's call on your life. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, tilling the soil that you might receive the Holy Son, in His Word. So I beg you, if you're His people, and the only way we know if you're His people is if you respond to the work of the Spirit and you respond to the truth of the Word, and that is receive it. Receive the repentance that leads unto life. If you have received that, then I'm calling us, me and you, to live like we've received it. Um, I pray that we will go forward as his witnesses in the way of God, that we would speak about his word, his son, Jesus Christ, and that we would be involved in the work of his spirit. And so, I think the best way to end 
is that I say, may we be found faithful until we all gather together around the throne in heaven. Singing this. This is what we'll be singing. Revelation chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.